I can tell you that in all of the types of school investigations that I've done with adult to student boundary crossing behavior, inevitably in, I don't want to give a specific percentage because I don't have the data in front of me, but in a large majority of cases, it uncovered really serious stuff. The kind of stuff that was immediately that caused my investigation where the police or, or you know, law enforcement, whether it's the FBI or local police were called to say, hey, we uncovered this. We're pausing our boundary crossing behavior investigation so that you can conduct a law enforcement investigation. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. We all know that there have been numerous high-profile scandals involving sexual abuse on the part of teachers and authority figures in the Orthodox world. We also know that as light is shed upon these cases, public awareness grows and the likelihood of cover-ups is hopefully lessened. At the same time, we need to explore how to put protocols in place so that schools, institutions, and organizations can avoid many of the problems in the first place, and should these problems occur, have strong guidelines so that the institution will know how to react, and so that parents and people connected to the institution can receive real information and be assured that proper procedure is being followed. In order to discuss this very important topic, I'm honored to host Rachel Bayer on the podcast this week. Rachel Bayer, CEO of the Bayer Group, is a former sex crimes and child abuse prosecutor who has worked in the field of sexual misconduct and abuse prevention for over a decade. As a prosecutor, Rachel was responsible for the prosecution and investigation of hundreds of sex crimes, child abuse, and domestic violence cases. As a consultant, Rachel developed and delivered customized interactive workshops, lectures, and training for schools, camps, sports organizations, media outlets, financial firms, law firms, global youth organizations, faith-based organizations, and nonprofits across North America. Over the past decade, Rachel has conducted many highly sensitive and high-profile investigations into allegations of sexual misconduct, harassment, and boundary-crossing behavior. Rachel and I talked about many issues related to institutions and their reactions to sexual misconduct, harassment, and boundary-crossing behavior, including questions about what protocols should be put in place, what's involved in a proper investigation, how parents can recognize whether a school is being forthright or is engaged primarily in protecting itself, how institutions can determine if an accusation is credible, whether there are warning signs that schools should look for before hiring teachers, and much more. As a final note before we begin the interview, I strongly suggest that if you are involved in an organization or have children in a school or yeshiva, that you find out exactly what protocols are in place. If you are given anything other than a forthright answer, you probably need to either distance yourself from that institution or start working with other concerned parties to ensure that things change immediately. Rachel Bayer, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start, Rachel, with some definitions. I'm sure that many listeners will be familiar with the terms anyway, but still, I'd like you to explain what each one means so that we're clear about what we're discussing before we begin discussing them. So, for example, your bio reads, over the past decade, Rachel has conducted many highly sensitive and high-profile investigations into allegations of sexual misconduct, 
harassment, and boundary-crossing behavior. So perhaps the answer is obvious, but I thought you could perhaps explain what those three terms mean, sexual misconduct, harassment, and boundary-crossing behavior, and how they're different from each other. Sure. So that is a, that's a lengthy question, but we will start right there. So when we talk about boundary-crossing behavior in any place that is adult-to-student or adult-to-child, what we're really talking about is the lines that exist that are not meant to be crossed. And those lines should be consistent and standard in any school or in any camp or any specific organization. And so the reason, A, why we have those is so that there's a roadmap for that place to identify when someone's actually crossed over that line. And so when we talk about boundary or boundary crossing behavior, a lot of times what we're talking about is this appearance of impropriety that's been created because there's an adult that's crossed that set line with a child in whatever place that is. When we talk about, I think the other questions were, were sexual misconduct and harassment, am I correct? Right. Okay. Yes. So when we talk about those other concepts, you know, depending on what type of place you are, are you a child facing place? Are you an adult to adult facing place? Right. You could have issues of harassment that are actually legal questions of workplace conduct. Right. And when we talk about harassment or discrimination or sexual harassment, a lot of times, especially in the United States, every workplace is protected. Every person is protected. So you could have adult to adult conduct. And then sometimes what you also have is in a child facing place like a school student to student conduct. Right. What happens when there's unwelcome conduct? It's not criminal. It's not an issue or an allegation of abuse or some sort of sexual assault, but it's an act or words that make people feel really uncomfortable within that setting. And so we use a lot of different terms to describe a lot of different things. Okay. There's a lot there, and I want to ask you about that. So I want to get back. back. Yes, <laughs> of course. Yes. I want to get back to the boundary crossing behaviors. Sure. And you talked about consistency. So I have two questions, and, I, and forgive me if this is too obvious, but I really want to understand. Are these behaviors consistent between different institutions, or does each institution have to decide on its own what that boundary is? And then within that institution, is it consistent between teachers and students and also between students and students? Meaning, is it the same behavior, or is it sometimes differentiated? Okay, so there's so much to unpack in that question, too. So let's break it down. There's no such thing as a set legal standard of boundaries that exist between adults and kids in schools in the United States, in Israel that I know of, that I know of, um, really Honestly, in any of the, the countries that I work in, I do not work in every country, so I can't say that there isn't some sort of random standard someplace. What it is, is that boundaries are about understanding what the best practices are in the time that we're living. So let me give you an example. Before COVID, before the pandemic and before schools switched over to Zoom, it would have been a best practice and standard that there should have been no teacher that was having a Zoom conversation with a student from their bedroom, right? Like that would not have happened. That would have been considered completely inappropriate. And then the world shut down and there were teachers that had no choice but to Zoom from their bedroom because their own children were on Zoom school and the only place that they had to teach was from their bedroom. So how do we shift that standard and that boundary so that there is still an element of what a boundary is, right? And we recognize that sometimes boundaries will shift based on the time period that we live in and also based on the age of the kids that you're working with. 
So when mm. we talk about things like physical boundaries, for example, and then I'll get back to the crux of your question. You know, if we saw a teacher walking down the hallway, holding the hand of the three-year-old nursery class, we wouldn't think twice, right? You can hold the hand of a three-year-old as you're guiding them from the lunchroom into the classroom. But if you saw a teacher holding the hand of an eighth grader, I hope that you would think twice about whether that's appropriate or not. So when we think about boundaries in general, unfortunately, there isn't a set like legal standard, but what there are, what there is, is a best practice, right? And that best practice is set from many, many years of both understanding grooming behaviors in schools, which I'm sure we'll define at some point also, but also understanding what that school is, right? And a lot of times people will think, well, in this school, the boundaries should be different because of what our ethos is or what our goal is or that we're faith-based. But the truth is boundaries are pretty consistent no matter what. And there's always a way to set that standard and to keep them, even in a school that feels very different from another school. So, Rachel, given the fact that there is no set legal definition, at the same time, though, we all kind of know what it is. I always cite Oliver Wendell Holmes and I know it when I see it, that yep. sort of thing. Should these boundaries be codified? Absolutely. Okay, so how is that done? How should the school do that? So first of all, I think, you know, there are a lot of different resources out there, a lot of people that work with schools, a lot of organizations that work with schools, and honestly, a lot of schools that have already integrated boundary guidelines. So even just utilizing, you know, the school networks that you have to say, does anybody have set boundary guidelines? Can we take a look at them? Really good boundary guidelines, the kinds that, you know, for many years we've been implementing in schools, but also that we do a lot of training on are going to are going to encompass a variety of different boundaries, one on one conversations, one on one interactions, not, you know, conversational boundaries, physical boundaries, emotional boundaries, behavioral boundaries, school specific situations, things like navigating bathrooms and locker rooms and overnight trips. For a Jewish school, Shabbaton, Shabbat meals, right? All of those pieces and social media and electronic communication and a variety of other things as well. Are you a boarding school? Are you a day school, right? Are you an elementary school? Are you a high school? And so I think the first thing is to recognize kind of what we don't know. If you're a school that doesn't have boundary guidelines, you need them, right? And not only do you need them on paper, you need them in practice, which means you have to be willing to train your faculty and staff, tell your students about them, your parent body, and commit to it not sitting on a shelf collecting dust. I hear that. I feel in some ways we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I'm I'm really fascinated by this topic. I think it's important. So when a teacher, for example, or anyone else in any organization does cross a boundary, what happens next? I guess we're going to the next level because it could be grooming behavior, and I do want to find out how we can define that. Right. But it could just be the teacher made a mistake and didn't realize that he or she is crossing some sort of boundary. So what happens when someone does cross a boundary? So and it, obviously it depends what the boundary is. Yeah, it definitely depends what the boundary is. It also depends on how well-versed the school is on the importance of understanding why those boundaries are there and what happens when someone crosses them. Because a lot of times in my, you know, over the course of, I want to say the past, you know, um, I'm I'm doing a calculation now, let's say six or seven years of conducting these investigations post being law enforcement, right? Post being at the DA's office. 
Um, one of the biggest issues would be, you know, a school saying we have this boundary crossing behavior or an allegation of a teacher, coach, or a volunteer crossing, you know, boundaries with a student, and we're not really sure how to vet it. We're not sure what to do with it. And so bringing in an outside agency, attorney, you know, um, expert to conduct those types of fact findings. You want to call them an investigation. You want to call them a fact finding to really figure out, is there something that's criminal that needs to be reported immediately to law enforcement? Is this an issue of boundary crossing behavior that mimics something that we would see as grooming? Is this something that was accidental and really wasn't ill, not only, you know, not it, it was not ill-intended, but also, you know, really was an accidental type of thing without a recognition of the significance of it. You know, there are plenty of times where someone may be in a situation where there's someone that bumps up boundary crossing behavior, some sort of fact finding is occurring, right? Part of the reason why you outsource that is so that you're not navigating bias, right? And you're not navigating your knowledge as the principal, as the administrator to say, oh, but I really don't think that person would ever be the type of person that would do X, Y, and Z. So you outsource it. You bring in someone that's essentially as neutral as they could possibly be, knowing that they are still paid by the school, right? And so depending on who you bring in, there needs to be that assessment. Let them do the fact finding, let them make that determination and then follow those recommendations. I can tell you that in all of the types of school investigations that I've done with adult to student boundary crossing behavior, inevitably in, I don't wanna give a specific percentage cause I don't have the data in front of me, but in a large majority of cases, it uncovered really serious stuff. The kind of stuff that was immediately that caused my investigation where the police or, or you know, law enforcement, whether it's the FBI or local police were called to say, hey, we uncovered this. We're pausing our boundary crossing behavior investigation so that you can conduct a law enforcement investigation. Now, Rachel, what does an investigation really consist of? And I realize that in certain situations, there's mounds of evidence. In some situations, you might tell me this isn't how it works, but right. I would think that one student accuses one teacher of one action. And it's simply the student's word versus the teacher's word. And at that point, how can an investigation even proceed? You know, it's hard to give you a checklist because the truth is that everything is very nuanced based on everything from the school, the age of the kid, kind of the 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 teacher student, let's say, relationship. And so I want to clarify that it's really important to think of investigations as two different types. One is if there is an allegation of any type of abuse, criminal behavior, even something that you're like, OK, we didn't walk in on a crime scene, but something's really not OK with this. That goes to the police. That doesn't mean that the police are going to open up an investigation. It doesn't mean that they're immediately going to show up at your school. But there should be a culture and there has to be a cultural shift that when in doubt, you report to law enforcement. Now, there are many times where law enforcement will say, look, we don't have a crime here. We can't do anything. We'll keep this, you know, we'll keep you in the loop. You keep us in the loop. But like our hands are essentially- Meaning tied. if something else happens, then we can add it to the Correct. total. But right now there's nothing to do. Correct. And then in that situation, right, a school may say, okay, but we still need to get to the bottom of this. Let's bring in an outside investigator who has an expertise in this area and not every- expert investigator has an expertise in every area, right? It's a very niche, it's a very niche market. And to be able to say, okay, 
These are the facts that we have. We literally have one student's word against one teacher. What do you need to do? And there are so many, look, there are so many pieces to it. And I can tell you that even in situations that I've been in where that's been the, the start of an investigation, and I also want to be clear that I no longer do investigations, but I solely do preventative training. So I speak, you know, only in terms of my own past experience. Um, but what I would say is, you know, one of the things that you do is you do essentially what we would almost call a document dump, right? In other words, are there text messages? Are there social media messages? What is it that you have? What was documented by the school? Taking a look at that. I have never been in a situation where even though the thought was there's only one student's word against the teacher's word where there aren't other people to speak to. There are always other people to speak to. People that may have been present, may have a different context, people that may have been, been what we would call a disclosure witness, someone that the student, let's say, disclosed to or spoke to. So once you start to parse it out, Part of what you do is essentially create, you know, the initial list of people that you want to speak to. And that list typically grows, right? And you have um, a way of being able to both document an investigation. And again, it's going to be very specific in terms of what type of investigation you're doing. Best practice would always be to conduct an investigation with a second person there, right? You're never talking to somebody on their own. And in terms of a student or a minor, for their parents to not only be notified, but to be given the opportunity to be present. We would highly discourage parents from being present while interviewing kids, but at its core, and I say this as a parent, and someone that has done these investigations, it is a parent, it should be a parent's right to be able to say, you know, I want to be present. My my child is a minor. So, you know, there are a bunch of other steps that happen, and investigations typically are not very short, right? That doesn't mean they have to be months long. Um, and they should happen efficiently and quickly. You know, most of the time these things come up the day before a vacation, right? Or like on Friday, right before Shabbat. And all of a sudden you're like, well, we can't do this in the next 48 hours. There's so much there. And I do want to get to best practices. I do want to get to defining grooming behavior. But based on what you just said right now, I have two questions. And the first one is, I don't know if it's really answerable, but I'll ask it anyway. If you could give a, a general guess on this one, when a teacher is accused of sexual abuse or crossing a boundary that cannot be crossed, how often is the accusation true and how often is it false? Because I have been led to believe, whether this is true or not, I don't know, that it's almost always true. And obviously that can impede an investigation if we walk in with an assumption of guilt, but it might also be percentage-wise true. So can you give me a general guideline in terms of how often are the accusers telling the truth? Okay, so I actually want to backtrack it and answer this in a very different way that may feel a little roundabout. I want to acknowledge that. Um, but I want to answer it in a, in a very specific way. I'm identifying okay. the fact that I'm not giving you a one-word answer, which is or one, a one-line answer. Okay. Breaking down your question is actually integral to understanding how kids disclose when it comes to sexual abuse. Disclosures of sexual abuse, especially when kids are coming forward, are very, very rare. Kids do not disclose for a variety of reasons. They're ashamed, they're terrified, they're embarrassed, they're concerned that the abuse that happened to them was their fault, that they caused it, that maybe this makes them gay or it makes them straight or all of a sudden their parents will think they're disgusting and gross or their siblings will never get married, right? There are so many reasons why kids do not disclose sexual abuse. 
And when sexual abuse is happening, kids also, and adults too, our brains encode trauma in very particular ways. Now I'm not a scientist, but having, having uh, prosecuted a number of rape cases and having studied a lot with regard to how our brain encodes trauma as part of just you know, trial preparation, and my own, you know, my own training as a, as a former prosecutor, which is we assume that a kid or that an adult is going to encode trauma in a very linear fashion. We make an assumption that if it's so bad and it's so traumatic, they'll just be able to tell us and they'll be able to tell us like this happened on Tuesday at 7.15 and this is what I was wearing and this is what it felt like. And that's not reality. And for everybody that's listening, if you think about it like this, if you've ever been in a car accident, you know that in a traumatic car accident, you may have this like like flash freeze, right? Where you see something and then all of a sudden you end up in a hospital and you can't remember certain things or certain things come back to you. The smell of rubber, right? All of a sudden that metallic taste that was in your mouth when you started to realize there might've been blood and those things don't come back in a linear fashion. When we even think about the fact that when you have something traumatic happen to your body, you don't necessarily feel pain at the beginning, right? Pain can come even days later because your body is regrouping and recalibrating. Sexual abuse is very similar in that way. And so in order to answer that question, we have to take a step back and realize the insurmountable hurdle for a kid to disclose that someone in a trusted position that is respected, that is loved, that is adored, may have done something horrific and terrible to them. And the hurdle that they know that no one else sees this person as creepy or scary. The majority of kids, and when I say majority, I'm not using data that's in front of me right now, but I'm telling you from my experience in having done this work for over 10 years as a former sex crimes and child abuse prosecutor, as someone that's conducted many, many external investigations and in the work that I do now, I think I had one case where it was clear that the child that was disclosing was disclosing abuse, but that had happened by someone else in a different time period. One case, and not a kid that lied, a kid that was disclosing in a way where the interpretation was that one person had done it, but really it was another person that had done it, okay? So when you think about the idea of asking the question, how many are true or how many are not, or what do we do? We have to take a step back and reframe because if we don't take the approach of believing kids when they come forward, especially when we know that kids disclose with what I call breadcrumbs, they leave a trail. They'll tell you one piece of information and they'll tell someone else something else. And they'll wait to see if anyone is going to follow the trail. It means that we, as whether you're an educator, a parent, whoever you may be, have to take the approach of believing kids and then reporting and let law enforcement conduct their forensic interview figure out if there's enough evidence, figure out if there's something complex that's there. I also say this as a former forensic interviewer of kids, right? There's a lot of complexity, but complexity doesn't mean falsity. So Rachel, that leads to a different question. You're describing right now kids to whom something actually happened. That's why they're disclosing it that way. So the phenomenon, which people claim exists, but you're saying it probably doesn't exist, of a kid just whole cloth making it up, 
you're saying there is no such thing really that a kid simply saying i mean i I don't mean it never happened but by and large that's not what happens because what you're describing this trauma is someone to whom something happened but that same sort of breadcrumb trail wouldn't necessarily be the case for a kid who's just lying i'm not saying there is such a kid but in theory that would be the way it would work i mean you know, I can't give you a blanket statement. It would be inappropriate of me to do so because I don't know every person in this whole world, right? And neither right. do you. And, and we have right. to be really cognizant of that. I take the approach of when it comes to sexual abuse specifically, kids coming forward, we have to make the assumption that they are telling the truth. Is it possible that there could be a kid somewhere who makes something up? I mean, it's it's there are so many things are possible, right? But that possibility does not actually mean that we should be creating a wedge in the idea of what it means to like look into the veracity of an allegation as people that don't have that expertise. Because in the vast majority of cases, for a kid to come forward and put themselves out there like that in detail, I mean, when you look at a lot of these like civil complaints, right? They're not criminal, they're civil suits. And you look at the detail that's alleged in these civil complaints, there are certain details that you just, you know, for a kid to come forward and to articulate all of those different pieces. And and there are, and, and again, if we were doing a whole podcast on like what all those different things are, I'm sure we could get into it. But the bottom line is that for a kid to come forward and know that their family is going to be impacted. For many kids in many communities, especially faith-based and religious communities, they know that their family is going to be a pariah. Like they know that the initial inclination is going to be not to believe them. It is a horrific burden. And so I, as somebody that, that was, you know, part of law enforcement, as somebody that then was not part of law enforcement, would say to you, instead of worrying about whether there are false claims or not, why don't we recognize that so many kids have not come forward and won't come forward because they're so scared of that question. So if we take a different approach for the next few years, let the professionals do what they need to do. If there is something that falls in there that is false, let them, let the professionals actually parse that out. Okay, I really appreciate that. I think it's important. I'm only trying to ask questions that I can imagine people listening would say, well, what about this case? What about that case? Because I was once the administrator of a school, of a yeshiva in Israel, and it never happened at our school that there was any accusation. But I used to think, what would happen if? And it's something which always was a burden on my mind in that situation. Let's get down to talking about what grooming behaviors are and trying to at least illuminate and define what those might be. What should people be on the lookout for when they see something that might be a grooming behavior? Sure. So I think the first thing is for people, you know, again, whether it's a parent, an educator, or someone who's running a school, whatever it might be, to first recognize that when we think about grooming behaviors in the context of any child facing place, what we really, really need to recognize and we really need to understand is that most people that engage in grooming behavior are not creepy, are not scary, and are not going to give off a creepy vibe. And I think that that's a really important piece of it because we have this, like we suffer from law and order syndrome. Like we make an assumption that because of what we've seen on TV, like I would just know, like I would know if someone gave off pedophile vibes. So let's like get rid of that myth and then actually answer the question. When we um, talk about grooming behavior, really the way that I define it is that in an adult to child situation, so talking specifically about that narrow situation, 
when you have an adult and child, and let's also talk about it in a non-familial situation right now, because in families, it can look a lot different when there's sexual abuse that's happening. You have an adult who attaches themselves and connects to a kid, whether it's because that kid has a vulnerability or they, that abuser sees a vulnerability of a moment in time and essentially connects with that kid by breaking down certain natural boundaries that are meant to exist in that type of relationship or connection. And in breaking down those boundaries creates what from the outside may look like a really positive relationship, a deep relationship, but the goal of breaking down those boundaries is to connect to that child, make that child love and trust them and care about them. And by engaging in things like asking that child to keep a secret, right? That what we do is secretive. Don't tell anyone, don't tell your friends, they'll be jealous. Don't tell other people because then I'll have to do things for other people too. Don't tell your parents because your parents kind of suck. And like, they're not giving you the attention, you know, that you need. And I've seen something with you. So whether it's by engaging in the secretive, you know, this is just between us and it feels mundane. It's here's a gift and here's my time. And here's something that I want to share with you that I've never shared with anybody else. And then all of a sudden, whether it's days or weeks or months, or in many cases, it could even be years, right? All of a sudden, what is happening is that that natural breakdown of boundaries is creating a connection where that child trusts that adult, loves that adult, thinks that adult is amazing, like is the best thing that's ever happened to them. And the adults around them think that as well. Because what they're doing is they're creating this false sense of, I'm here to create this environment to give your kids something extra. But really what it is, is I'm building this trust with the child and I'm driving a wedge in terms of that child and other people around them. So that when that abuser touches that child sexually or has that child touch them or exposes them gradually to something sexual, that child, whether they're you know five years old or 16 years old, is probably standing in the moment thinking to themselves, like, how could it be, right? How could it be that this person that loves me and cares about me and trusts me, this person that my parents trust or that my family members trust would ever do something bad or unsafe to me? Well, maybe it's my fault or maybe I caused it or maybe I made this up. Like maybe this is all in my head or maybe I'm supposed to learn this. Right. Maybe I'm supposed to do this. And and I and no one's ever said to me, this is actually not OK or not safe. And I want you to imagine how that rests on the shoulders of a child. Right. When we take it back to your question before and we talk about disclosures and why we believe kids, because you're not walking in to an active shooter scene when you're dealing with sexual abuse, you are dealing with hideous, like hidden in sit like really just like under the radar types of behavior where that kid believes they can't come forward like they can't say anything because because they're so confused by what's actually happening and they're watching the people around them adore this adult as much as they did that's that's how i define grooming okay rachel i'm going to say something which I'm talking about older kids here, kids who are about 18 years old, and I'm sure I'm going to anger some colleagues who hear this. I'm not suggesting that this is grooming behavior. A lot of what you just described sounds a lot of what happens in yeshivot in Israel in the year after high school. Like what you just described, 
that is standard de rigueur behavior in a lot of yeshivot. Not because I'm saying it's grooming necessarily. I'm just saying that that's how you relate. You're up with kids till two in the morning, having a one-on-one chavruta, maybe in a classroom. What's the difference, if there is a difference? So given your question, and as someone who also, you know, I, I, I spent a gap year, you know, in, in seminary also, in yeshiva also. So let's, let's break that down. If you're asking that question because the description feels very similar to what happens, don't we have a responsibility to take a hard look at our gap year programs and say, wait a second, wait a second. If the goal is growth and learning and education and growth as a human being, and our behaviors are mimicking something that's very, very dangerous. Shouldn't we take a hard look at our behaviors and maybe think about changing them? I am 100% on the same page. I guarantee you that. <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. Like, just throwing it out there. I may, I may make a lot of enemies also, you know, but, but really. You don't have to convince me. I'm just being upfront about this. I know people aren't going to want to hear that, but it's something which is very, very scary. And I think we have to take a better look at it. Okay, let's talk about designing best practices for an institution. Sure. Where does an institution begin? So I think that there's, you know, there are kind of the, I want to say there's a simple way to begin, but the truth is there is no simple way to begin. You begin with a buy-in from the top. Before you ever put anything on paper, you're, you know, the, the, the top, the head of school, the principals, you know, however the school is structured, the board, all has to be on board with recognizing that this is something that has to happen and not reluctantly. Like there has to be a buy-in that this is of value and this is important. And just because we did things five years ago a particular way doesn't mean that we should be doing it the exact same way now and that there has to be like movement. So I think that that's the first thing. I have definitely had conversations with people that work in schools as division heads, as heads of whatever, you know, and, and they'll come to me and they'll say, we really want to implement this, but like our head of school or our principal doesn't think this is a big, like doesn't, is not willing to put their time and effort behind it. And my response is you got to get them on board or it's really a wasted, it's a wasted exercise. So that's the first piece buy-in. I think the second piece is in looking at what you have. Like, what does your handbook have? What state, if you're in the United States, right, what state are you in? What are the requirements in that state? In the United States, every single state has mandated reporting laws where you are required to report. In different states, it's different types of things. In some states, it's only allegations of abuse that might be happening in a family situation. In some states, it's any allegations of abuse that's happening to a child. Do you understand your state requirements, your state laws? You know, when you think about even with regard to Israel and the requirements that exist, do you understand them? Do you know them? The terminology is different in Israel, right? The word harassment is used actually as a different way than we use harassment in the United States. So I think that that's the first piece. What is required? What do you need to do? And then ask, where are the holes? And I'll tell you right now that most of the holes fall into the place of the things that are not legally required. But as we talked about at the beginning, our best practices and should be implemented. Every state in the United States, you're going to have a sexual harassment policy or an anti-harassment policy for adults. Every state should have a mandated reporting, you know, something in their handbook that explains what it is, where somebody calls, how they do it, etc. But those boundary guidelines in terms of adults to kids are not legally required. So in terms of starting, really being able to, again, turn to other schools and say, did you use someone? Have you implemented this? Can I take a look at what it is that you've done? 
And then when we really drill down, aside from what you have on paper, thinking about your student on student interactions, no matter what school you are, right? No matter where you fall in like the spectrum of Frumkite, of Judaism, of orthodoxy, right? No matter where you are, you should have a student anti-harassment policy, how students interact with each other. What happens if a student sends another student an inappropriate or a naked, you know, they are the same, one and the same, but like an inappropriate text, right? On Snapchat, if somebody records a student and posts it on TikTok without their consent, right? What happens if you have everything from bullying and cyberbullying and issues of sending nudes or sexting? What is your policy, right? What is your policy and what is it that you want to do when that trickles down into school? Because it will trickle down into school, right? In navigating issues of just, you know, whether it's it's unwelcome, misogynistic words, right? Whatever it might be, how do you want to handle that? And then being able to look at what you have on paper and what you don't have, fill in the gaps with people that actually do know what they're doing. Again, whether it's another school that's done this, an outside expert, whether it's your attorney, right? Whoever it might be, and then take a good look at it and say, are these usable? Are these usable? Do I understand them? Are they written in legalese and nobody really gets it, right? Are they usable? And then that last step, the last step in this introductory piece is, are we trading on them? Are we providing workshops for our faculty and staff, right? Are we providing workshops for our coaches? Are we providing workshops for our parent community, for our students? What are we integrating? You don't have to do it all at once. It doesn't have to be a huge, like, you know, um, require an ent- days of your time, right? But what are you doing to bring this education into your community? I want to ask you, based on what you said at the beginning of what you just answered, when you talked about buy-in, do you still see problems with buy-in? The only reason I'm asking, I'm here in Israel, so I'm outside of the loop of the American educational world, but I would think with the tremendous and welcome press and attention that sexual harassment in schools is getting now, that a school's administration would be enthusiastic about putting these protocols into place because they understand that the consequences of not having these protocols can be extremely dire. Right. I think my my own data may be skewed because by the time you're calling someone like me, you're like, oh, we want to do this work. We're committed Mm -hmm. to bringing in an outside person. And also we're willing to invest time and money, right? And all of those pieces that go into it. So I'm not on a daily basis ever getting a call from someone that's like, someone said I should call you, but I don't want to, right? Nobody is doing that because nobody has the time. But what I can say, and I am not the only person that does this. There are a lot of really good organizations, a lot of really good people. There is someone for every school, there is someone for every camp. And the truth is that I think that there is still a vast majority of places who are saying, we'll handle this internally, we'll do it the way we've done it, or we don't really need that until there's an issue, right? Until it becomes reactive. What I'd love to see, and what I know colleagues of mine would love to see, is a proactive approach to all of this. Don't wait for an issue, prevent the issues. Definitely. Let's talk about when they didn't do that, though. Let's talk about a situation where the school has to call you, Rachel, because they did not act proactively. 
let's say a school has a credible accusation and they say we're handling it. What should a parent look for or anyone who cares about the school or the society look for to know whether or not this is being done transparently and properly or whether it's being done as a cover-up of some sort or something in between? Because it could be they simply want to protect people's privacy and that's why they're not talking about it transparently. But on the other hand, they may be trying to cover it up. Yeah. I mean, look, every situation is going to be nuanced. And I always, I always remind people it's not just the words that people say, it's how they say it. Right. Because you can have someone stand up in front of a student body or send an email and say, look, this is what we know. This is what we've done. Here is the direct phone number to the detective, the police officer. You please talk to your kids. If there's anything to report, please report it directly. Right. Don't come to us. We don't want to be the keeper of this. We want you to go to the professionals. But also there's information we can't share because of a protection of privacy of minors or because there's an active law enforcement investigation. There is a way to communicate that you cannot share everything without it seeming like you are not sharing anything. And that is a very nuanced approach. And honestly, it's, it's kind of the same thing that I tell parents when they, when they ask the question, how do I know if a school takes this kind of stuff seriously? And I'll say, ask the question, right? Say to them, what do you do in terms of, you know, in a, in a proactive approach? What do you do in terms of your policies and procedures? What do you do with regard to abuse prevention? If a school looks at you or turns to you and says, oh, we, we, don't, we don't need to, we're, we're good. Like run far away, right? If a school turns to you and says, why do you need to know? Like why, like they become defensive, right? Then I would turn to the parent and say like, maybe choose a different school, right? So what, and again, that's a very privileged notion. We can't always choose different places. There aren't always choices, right? And so it can be very worrisome for parents in this situation. When you think about how a school communicates when something really horrific happens, it is okay to say, we can't share everything. However, we are going to share everything we can and if we get more information in two days, we will communicate it to you and we will provide a way for you to speak directly to law enforcement. And look, I say this as someone who has been both a parent in this situation as well as a professional in this situation. And it can feel, you know, as in both, in both of those roles, right? It is, it's an overwhelming feeling to feel like you don't know everything, right? Or you can't know everything. But I think a lot of it has to do with how a school conveys it um, and, the, and the way that they share what they can't share. And I know that feels like not specific, right? I, I wish I could give you a checklist, but the truth is it's very, very nuanced. I think I understand what you mean. There's such a thing as that feel again of whether or not they're divulging what they can and offering you to communicate with them and saying, please talk to us and we will tell you what we can tell you. That's a very different situation than what feels like a cover-up. Going back to something you mentioned earlier about how most people who are predators or who are engaged in grooming type behavior don't appear, as you said, creepy at the beginning. Are there any particular telltale signs or warning signs or red flags that a school should look for when hiring teachers, even though they may not be creepy, but there's something which is off that a school should know this may not be the right person to hire because this person may engage in wrongful behavior. 
So I actually think an assessment of boundaries in the past places that they've worked, even if they are a new teacher, and especially if they are a new teacher and are young, and let's say are an alum of the school, right? We see a lot of times, even in high schools, where they'll bring back an alum like three or four years later to teach classes. An assessment of boundaries, whether it's through questions that are asking scenario-specific things, things that you know, are not necessarily so simple to answer. You have a student that comes to you at the end of a class one day is like really clearly very upset, needs to speak privately, insists on speaking in a private space. You know, you're like, okay, um, you know, okay, let's find a private space. And then, and then essentially says to the teacher, like, I have not told anybody this, like, I, I can't share this with anyone, but I'm navigating whatever it might be, issues of self-harm and eating disorder, right? All of these, you know, questions of, of gender and sexuality. I can't tell my family. I can't tell my parents. I can't tell anybody else in the school. They won't understand me like you will, right? And like you have shown to be and I need someone to talk to. And doing almost like an assessment of boundaries in that situation, right? That is a very real situation. It is also very nuanced. And schools should have protocols and policies of how to navigate each of those issues. That should be conveyed, but it's always great to get a temperature check, right? What would you do in that situation? Do you ascribe to more of like the old school of I will keep your secrets? Right? Or are you in tune enough to understand in this day and age, there's a very big difference between doing what's appropriate and professional and quote unquote, keeping a student's secrets, which shouldn't happen in a school setting. That doesn't mean you're sending out an email blast, right? Or telling any of their friends um, or, or even automatically jumping to, I'm gonna call your parent right now, right? There's gonna be a policy and a protocol of how to navigate each of those things. But I really like the idea of getting a temperature check on boundaries. The other thing that I really like um, is being able to look at someone's resume and see where they've been for how long they've been and why it is that they've left, right? There are a lot of reasons why we jump from places to places. And, and I say this as someone that worked in like three different camps, right? Before my adult life, because one was pre-Israel, one was post-Israel, right? Mm -hmm. Like we all do this like shifting from place to place. But it doesn't have to be sinister, of yeah, course. Yeah, it doesn't. Again, like I, I lived that. I don't, I, I'm not making an assumption that because you've jumped from place to place, there's something sinister, but I'd love to know why is there a reason, right? Is there a reason that you worked at four different camps? Why don't you tell me what it was about each of those camps that pulled you at that particular time, especially for educators that are young in their years of education and their experience is a camp setting, which is more informal education, or in a youth group setting, which has been about navigating the complexities of religiosity, right? I need to understand what your, you know, mode of connecting with students is, and understand why you've gone from place to place so that I can have a better sense of your boundaries. That is complex and takes time. And I don't want anybody listening to me. Like I know all, every single head of school that's, that's you know, navigated through COVID and survived, like deserves a medal, like honestly, right? So for me to say, and also add an hour to the interview process, <laughs> your question wasn't like, what should they do? It's what could they do? So I'm offering right. that as a possible solution. Okay. I appreciate that. You know, we've heard about scandals in the Catholic church with uh, abuse that priests have abused children, and we can see how that specific scandal there is tied to the unique role of priests in the Catholic Church. 
Are there specifically orthodox behaviors or perhaps specifically orthodox types of positions that can also lead to such behaviors? I don't mean that everyone will engage in them, of course, but the sort of situation where perhaps orthodox Jews have to be on the lookout more than other people because of the nature of our society. It's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that there's a simple answer. I actually think it's not orthodox specific. I think it's faith-based specific because mm-hmm. I think it's applicable in any type of community where we revere people and make the initial assumption that that reverence, that respect, that kavod, right, means that we should automatically give them the benefit of the doubt or allow them to skirt certain boundaries. And I think that anytime you have a faith-based place where questions are being asked, whether it's, you know, an Eitzah piece of advice, whether it's, you know, an issue of asking a, a real question, right, Ashela, in terms of what we should or shouldn't do in the personal realm, that means that there's opportunity for abuse, right? There's opportunity for someone, not that people in positions of power are abusive, but there is an opportunity for someone who is an abuser to use that position of power and authority to essentially be able to manipulate and coerce. And so I think what we have to do and what I've seen people do really successfully, especially in rabbinic positions in synagogues um, and in shuls, is to say there's no such thing as anybody being above anything. We have policies. We have to adhere to them. I think some of the best conversations I've had with clergy that are like, we need to do this stuff and I need to be the biggest proponent of it. Right. I need to be the one that people will know. I keep to every one of these policies. I believe in this. I speak about it from the Bima. Right. In other words, there's that notion of real commitment to this. So really, to answer your question, I think that the more we are insulated and the more that we are insulated, believing that this doesn't happen here or that we can't air our dirty laundry or that it's you know, it, it, it's an issue of Lashon Hara or Motsi Shemra or the idea of not being able to report, those ideas still percolate within the Orthodox community, right? I think that a lot of times, especially in like, you know, much more enclosed communities, the idea of like, but but we can't talk about it. Like we can't, we still have to whisper about it is very, very dangerous and means that we're no different than a situation of, you know, another religion that's saying like, we're not going to talk about it as well. And so I believe that we have a responsibility, right? And I think we didn't really ask this question. I'll just throw it in there. Um, (laughs) Go ahead. Even from the perspective of being religious, right? And from, and learning Tanakh, right? And being able to look at the entire beginning of the Torah and recognizing how many situations of abuse are actually like identified and talked about and really asking serious questions, right? What does it mean that like, you know, I I was actually just talking to someone about this previously, like why, why is it that we have issues of both sexual abuse and rape and complexities in terms of child abuse that are actually referenced? Like, isn't that part of our roadmap? We're supposed to talk about this. We're supposed to delve into this. We're supposed to ask questions and work to make ourselves better as a community. And so I I wish and I hope my wish is that for the next decade, we are not like what happened with the Catholic Church and that we shift. But it's only going to happen with the commitment of people that in the past have essentially said we shouldn't talk about it. People have to change. That's a really good point. And Rachel, as you were talking right now, looking back at Tanakh, suddenly something occurred to me. The concept that the avot and imahot 
kept the Torah and followed halacha even before the Torah was given in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. And we can accept this historically. We can reject it historically. The Ramban mentions it as one explanation of why the Torah tells us that Avraham kept God's laws. But regardless of how we understand it in its literal sense, it certainly can give us a perspective on what you're saying right now, which is that no leader is above the rules. And by saying that even the people we look back at, historical or otherwise, in terms of whether they kept halakha, the fact that we say, no, they had to keep to the rules too, means that nobody is above the law. There's no such thing as it applies to us, but it didn't apply to them. And that's an important point. A hundred percent. And I'll never forget one of the first conversations that I actually had with my father, who's a rabbi, um, you know, and, and was a public rabbi for a long time about these issues coming out in Tanakh. One of the things that he actually pointed out to me that I had never seen, never in all my years of study was that, you know, Abraham and Yitzhak, when they walk up for the Akedah, right, when they walk up for the sacrifice, they don't come down together and mm-hmm. they never speak again, right? And one of the things that we kind of skirt over with that is when you have something traumatic happen to a kid, it's not going to wrap itself up in a bow afterwards to not discuss it, to not delve into it, to not talk about it, right? And so part of what I think we're getting to in this conversation is that we have a roadmap. No one is above the law. No one is past the point of being in a, in a position where trauma can happen to them. But we have a responsibility to acknowledge and to discuss it and to make it better. Yeah, that's a really good point about the Akeda too. This all does lead to that general idea, and we are getting close to the end over here, but the damaging effects of purely charismatic leadership. I don't mean right. that a person shouldn't be charismatic, but charismatic leadership in and of itself is extraordinarily dangerous. And I think that we in the Orthodox community, and perhaps in many other communities as well, I only know the Orthodox community, but we can fall prey to that. We see charismatic leaders, whether or not they're above the rules publicly or just privately, but this charismatic leadership and the connection between it and abuse is something which can't be ignored. Correct. You know, I think there's also a very big difference between charisma and charismatic leadership where all behavior is excused and you are above the law and above boundaries. And I do think it's important to differentiate because, you know, I'm someone who loves public speaking, right? And I have seen amazing public speakers and amazingly charismatic leaders but they are not above the law. They are not in a position where they use their charisma to manipulate or coerce or to say this doesn't apply to me. And so I'd also love us to see a differentiation between people who have that charisma and use it well and people that use it in a coercive and manipulative way. And unfortunately, there are too many examples. Okay, Rachel, I have one last question for you. We've been speaking a lot about the various protocols that institutions, schools, and other places should establish and best practices, what one should do after the fact. About a month ago, I had a conversation, a teacher panel, and my own teacher, Rabbi Simkovich, who was on that panel, was lamenting the fact that 30 years ago, he had this exact same discussion, and we're talking about the exact same issues now 30 years later with very few signs of progress. In the context of sexual abuse and protocols and all that we've been speaking about, have you seen progress? Are things different now than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago? I have definitely seen progress. Now, granted, 20 years ago, I wasn't doing this work, right? So so there is also, but, but I was a student, right? In other words, I was a student and I understood what it was like to be there with, whether it's, you know, in your high school or in your school in general with that charismatic leader or, or, or navigating those complexities. I have seen a big shift even over the course of the past couple of years, right? I have seen schools that had never done more than a check the box, if at all, um, basically come and say, what do we need? 
like help us, help us do this, not just because our insurance company is saying we have to, but because we want to. You know, I have seen rabbis stand up and speak from the from the pulpit and come over to me afterwards and say, you know, whether I was there or not there, right? And say, you should know that after I spoke, like people came over to me who I had never known had been sexually abused as kids and said, thank you for doing that. Like you, you don't know this because only my spouse knows this or only my children know this. Um, but I was sexually abused as a kid, right? I've seen camp directors say, we need this consistently and constantly. We need it to be innovative and new. It can't be the same every year. We need a commitment to this. I've seen people terminate the contracts of people that shouldn't be working with kids, even though they were beloved and charismatic and seemed to be wonderful. And so I, I can't say that I'm always an optimist in this field, but I can say that the more we talk about it, the more podcasts that we put out about it, the more panels we have with multiple people on those, the more we choose to discuss this and the more that we break into the places that you know three years ago would never have had these conversations, I think the more hopeful I am. Okay, well, thank you for ending on that hopeful note. And Rachel Bayer, this is really enlightening and I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.